Okay, uh, a little bit of backstory here. <laughs> Might be surprised by the reading today. We'll go even further back. The story of Balaam and the ass is told as part of the end of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness after the Israelites left Egypt. The Moabites were a people who stood in the way of the Israelites entering the promised land. Their king knew the Israelites were too mighty for his army, so he sent for a local priest, Balaam, to put a curse on the Israelites. Then this happened. This is from the book of Numbers. And Balaam rose up in the morning and saddled his ass and went with the princes of Moab. And God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against him. Now he was riding upon his ass, and his two servants were with him. And the ass saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and his sword drawn in his hand. And the ass turned aside out of the way and went into the field. And Balaam smote the ass and turned her back into the way. But the angel of the Lord stood in a path of the vineyards, a wall being on this side and a wall on that side. And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she thrust herself into the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall, and he smote her again. And the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she fell down upon Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he smote the ass with his staff. And the Lord opened the mouth of the ass, and she said unto Balaam, What have I done unto thee that thou hast smitten me these three times? And Balaam said unto the ass, Because thou hast mocked me, I would there were a sword in my hand, and I would kill thee. And the ass said unto Balaam, Am not I thine ass, upon which thou hast ridden ever since I was thine unto this day? Was I ever wont to do so unto thee? And he said, Nay. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and his sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Wherefore hast thou smitten thine ass these three times? Behold, I went out to withstand thee, because thy way is perverse before God. And the ass saw me and turned from me these three times. Unless she had turned from me, surely now also I would have slain thee, and she has saved thy life. And Balaam said unto the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. For I knew not that thou stoodst in the way against me. Now therefore, if it displease thee, I will get me back again. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but only the word that I shall speak unto thee thou shalt speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. Now the story of Balaam and the ass occurs in the book of Numbers. It's one of the five books of the Torah. The ass, also known as a donkey, is properly called Equus Africanus Asinus. 
Since that translation of the Bible took place back in the 1600s, of course, the term ass has taken on other connotations. Now, here's some Pentecostal humor for you from my youth. Question, who's the laziest character in the Bible? Answer, Balaam, because he's always sitting on his ass. Most scholars believe there's also the, who's the shortest uh, character in the Bible. It's, uh, it's uh, Balak the Shuhite. Shuhite? No. Most scholars believe the story of Balaam and the ass was written down sometime in the 500s before the Common Era, but of course it goes back in oral tradition much further. One thing that is easy to miss about the Bible is that it's full of what we nowadays call Jewish humor. Jesus wasn't a stand-up comedian by any means, but readers of the Gospels tend to miss what humor is there. In the Sermon for the, on the Mount, for example, Jesus utters what are probably his most famous words. And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid, forbid not to take away thy coat also. Now, to get the joke there, you must know that cheek is a mistranslation of the Greek word saigona, which means jaw. Turning the other jaw would make what is considered an obscene gesture in the Mediterranean world from that time to this. What is translated as cloak is emation, the root of the English word immediate. And what is translated as coat is chitona. The lost image there appears to be that if someone takes your coat, give them your immediates which was underwear. <laughs> so, now that's in the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel according to Matthew, the passage is put into a legal context. If someone sues you for your coat, go to court and give them your underwear. <laughs> and Jane will tell you today why there's two different versions of that and it gets backwards sometimes. I could go on, <laughs> but you get the point. Uh, humor is often lost in translation. Now, while I'm on the subject of Pentecostal humor, I have to say that some of my earliest memories are of being in wild church services. I grew up in a holy roller congregation, so services included speaking in tongues, dancing in the spirit, shouting, jumping, slaying in the spirit, exorcisms, and all sorts of things of that sort. I should add that I never felt like doing any of these things myself. The spirit never moved me, you might say, right? That said, I always loved Pentecostal music. Electric guitars, tambourines, drums, pianos, melodians, that's that really cheesy sounding little organ thing, right? on 96 Tears, if you know that song, right? <laughs> and there was a lot of noise. And washerwomen, that's what they used to call people like my mom who scrubbed floors, and gruff factory workers like my dad, they sang out those songs, uh, many from the 19th century. There was a writer by the name of Philip Bliss 
who wrote, Free from the law, O happy condition, Jesus hath bled, and there is remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, Christ hath redeemed us once for all. Now, I hasten to add that I'm remembering the early 1960s because I'm old, and lots of folks don't get the connection between the first generation of rock and roll and from the 1950s era and the Pentecostal church music. Little Richard, for example, grew up in AME and Pentecostal churches. Jerry Lee Lewis was a cousin of Jimmy Swaggart, who both grew up Pentecostal, and Elvis grew up Pentecostal. And then there was the inspiration for all of those early rock and rollers, Sister Rosetta Tharp, whose mother was a preacher in the denomination called Church of God in Christ. Now, Sister wasn't Sister Rosetta Tharp's first name. Of course, we Pentecostals call each other brother and sister. There's no reverend in Pentecostalism. It's everybody's brother or sister. The playfulness and joy that led to rock and roll flowed directly out of Pentecostalism, especially the black church. Brother Philip Bliss was a 19th century writer of proto-rock and roll songs. Free from the law, O happy condition, he wrote. Jesus hath bled, and there is remission. Cursed by the law, bruised by the fall, Christ hath redeemed us once for all. Now nowadays, I know that the law that we were singing about being free from was the law of Moses. That's, though, sort of theology. In those days, when I was singing along, I thought the law was, you know, what Jesse James or Pretty Boy Floyd would have broken. Human law. And I suspect that a lot of the Pentecostals singing along with me in the church heard those lyrics just as I did. After all, we Pentecostals were in the world, but not of it. An old quote, so why would human law bind Bible-believing Christians? We were free, free, oh, happy condition, as the song goes. Pentecostalism has always been a variety of anarchism, actually breaking every conceivable social taboo. Sister Tharp's mother was a woman preaching in the black church in the early 20th century. In the walls of those churches, the oppressed were suddenly free. Bearing shame, wrote Mr. Bliss, and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. That's how Brother Philip Bliss phrased it. And we Pentecostals knew one Bible verse particularly well, one of the ones that Jane read this morning, 1 Corinthians 1.28. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. That's fairly anarchist, don't you think? Now, in your order of service this morning is a quote from the writer Neil Gaiman, right up there at the top. He wrote, the one thing that you have that nobody else has is you. Your voice, your mind, your story, your vision. So write and draw and build and play and dance and live as only you can. Write and draw and build and play and dance as only you can. Pentecostalism 
has the excuse that you've got to do what the Spirit says do. Humanism asks us to look at our own inner resources, including our creativity, to focus on the lived experience of being a human being, what it feels like to be human. And humanism asks us to not only dance our own dances, but to do everything we can to make that a reality for everyone to dance their own dance. For those working class people I was born into and grew up among, their religion was their only chance at dancing. Otherwise, it was yes sir and no sir all their lives. Pentecostalism and its secular progeny, rock and roll, freed people, if only in church and at concerts and bars and parks in the privacy of their own home, to do as Neil Gaiman suggests, write and draw and build and play and dance and live for what little time those people had for themselves. That's why you don't hear me attacking Christianity as a lived experience. Yes, as a philosophy, I think Christianity has a lot of problems. But as lived experience, that's different. In our world, in which most human beings are poor and uneducated and desperate, in our world, a person's birth religion is very often the only place they will ever get a chance to write and draw and build and play and dance and live unless they hear some good music on the radio. I wish it were otherwise. I'm glad I was lucky enough to escape all that. But we have to meet people where they are. And that's where most people in our nation and in our world are. As I mentioned earlier, Pentecostals know one Bible verse really well. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. You know, as I mentioned last week with the kids, the term cynic has become negative. It has a negative connotation. It's someone who doesn't like anything. Epicurean has a bad connotation, someone who indulges in the flesh. Stoic has a negative connotation, someone who ignores or suppresses emotion. All of those were schools of philosophy in competition with Christianity in the Roman Empire. And Paul knew his competition. That's why he wrote, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. He knew his audience. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of, of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He knew his audience. And that's where Christianity began to expand in the Roman world among those people 
who were lowly. God chose the lowly things, says Paul, of this world, and the despised things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. Paul set up his rhetoric so well that the philosophers of the Western world have still not adequately met his challenge. When you think of philosophy, you probably think of exactly that kind of wrong-headed, egg-headed, overprivileged, ivory tower thing that Paul wanted you to think. He set it up well. But consider this. The respected religion scholar John Dominic Crossan, who taught at DePaul University, a Catholic university for many years in Chicago, provocatively claims, and he's done a lot of study on this, provocatively claims that Jesus was a trained cynic philosopher. The actions and teachings of Jesus match much of the cynic school, the teachings of the cynic school. Most people don't know that because the early church didn't want you to know that which is to say that liberal religion in general, and humanism in particular, I think has a pretty serious play problem. Paul set it up that way, and we're still there. By which I mean that the problem is serious, and we need to seriously play. With Christianity in decline, it's time for philosophies, schools of thought, that's what they are, schools of thought, to reclaim their former place by answering Paul's challenge at last, out of the ivory tower and onto the streets and the farms. A philosophy isn't complicated if you don't make it that way. A philosophy is a means of examining a life in order to give life meaning and purpose, to achieve a life of connection and service to humanity, to the earth, and to living things on the earth. There's nothing abstract about that. There's nothing boastful about that. And, you know, maybe your philosophy even looks a little bit foolish. That's okay. That's why I put the quote from Neil Gaiman in there. It's okay. Paul was wrong. It's not foolish to seek wisdom, nor is it in the realm of only the privileged. But most of all, the seeking of wisdom must not be dull and boring and serious all the time. From the talking ass to turning the other jaw, human experience teaches us not to take ourselves all that seriously. Pentecostalism exists because it embraces the irrational. It follows Paul's words. Liberal Christianity in general and Unitarian and Universalism in particular exists because they have rejected irrationality over the centuries. It's only a matter of degrees. How much of the irrational does your tradition reject? And how much does it accept? But rejection of the irrational does not have to mean rejecting the fun, the play of thinking about life's ultimate questions. And let's face it, life is short and it's fun to have fun.